Hello, and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. My name is Richard Hogue, the managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today's a rather big day in virtual legality. We aren't going around summarizing Supreme Court decisions very often, but this decision, Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia, is, in my opinion, very likely to be one of those that's taught in law school for a long time, is one of those momentous type decisions that the name is going to resonate for people for a long time. And so because it is so important and because the justices wound up writing 172 pages of opinions and dissents on this particular issue, I thought, hey, I have a channel, I have a space. We can talk about what this decision means, how the justices arrived at the opinions that they had, and we can do it in minutes rather than hours because I'm reading these Supreme Court decisions anyway because I find them interesting. And so we can have a little bit of a short law school segment here in this space in virtual legality. Now, if you aren't familiar with this case, what the Supreme Court did is that they finally determined that the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title VII specifically, outlaws employer discrimination on the basis of an individual's presence in an LGBTQ group. Now, that was an open question for a long, long time, and the Supreme Court has finally said that that kind of discrimination is outlawed, but it took them a lot of reasoning to get there. So we're going to look at the opinions. We're also going to look a little bit at the reasoning behind the dissent. One thing I will say, and I think you are taught this in law school still, haven't been there for a long time, is that you can take a lot from both the opinion and the dissent of one of these cases. And I think it behooves everyone to assume that both sides are arguing in good faith, that they have a legal basis for their arguments. As we will see, some work better than others. Some I agree with, some I don't. But there are reasons that are other than political for these justices to make the decisions that they are making. I see on my social media, on Twitter, and various people asking me to talk about this case and these kinds of things in general, that you always want to ascribe politicization to judges and justices. Sometimes that is in fact the case. But often, if you look at the actual legal reasoning, you'll learn a little bit of the philosophy of either yourself or your opposition. And I think that is definitely the case here. So with that as background, let's dive into Bostock versus Clayton County. So first, we start with the introduction from Justice Gorsuch. This was a 6-3 decision with Alito, Thomas, and Kavanaugh dissenting. But Gorsuch writes the opinion, and he starts as follows. Sometimes, small gestures can have unexpected consequences. Major initiatives practically guarantee them. In our time, few pieces of federal legislation rank in significance with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. There, in Title VII... Congress outlawed discrimination in the workplace on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin, and only those categories, it should be noted. Today, we must decide whether an employer can fire someone simply for being homosexual or transgender. The answer is clear. An employer who fires an individual for being homosexual or transgender fires that person for traits or actions it would not have questioned in members of a different sex. Sex plays a necessary and undisguisable role in the decision, exactly what Title VII forbids. Now, we're going to look at that logic a little bit more deeply because this is only the introduction, but it is an accurate portrayal of what the court decides here. It is also one that has not been the way that the Civil Rights Act, Title VII in particular, has been interpreted for a long period of time, which you will see the dissent argue about when they get their chance to write some words. Those who adopted the Civil Rights Act might not have anticipated their work would lead to this particular result. I dare say there was no chance they anticipated this. Likely, 
They weren't thinking about many of the act's consequences that have become apparent over the years, including its prohibition against discrimination on the basis of motherhood or its ban on the sexual harassment of male employees. But the limits of the drafter's imagination supply no reason to ignore the law's demands. When the express terms of a statute give us one answer and extra textual considerations suggest another, it's no contest. Only the written word is the law, and all persons are entitled to its benefit. Now, that paragraph is very important because one of the things that you look at when you're reading a Supreme Court case, when you are interpreting a statute either for yourself or in front of a court, is are the words on the page, the words used in the text, are they ambiguous? Because it's only when there is some amount of ambiguity that the court actually steps in and says, okay, well, it is ambiguous, and so we think it means this, and they provide clarity to all those actors under the law. This paragraph suggests that there's only one way to read this statute, and there is no ambiguity. And you will see in the dissent, one of the arguments is, if there's no ambiguity, why were we reading it wrongly for so long? And I don't think that the opinion ever answers that terribly well, but they stick to this kind of law as programming language concept. And I think their arguments are sound. If we take the words on the page of the text and we apply our normal thought processes to them, this is what the programming language spits out. And no, maybe they weren't anticipating that in 1964, but as a side note, not included in the opinion, I think the message is, well, then Congress should be very, very careful about what words it puts in the programming language. And I think that's really where the court stands on this particular decision. Now, in order to understand with more specificity what's happening here, we actually have to look at the law as passed, which says very simply as follows. It shall be an unlawful employment practice for an employer to fail or refuse to hire or to discharge any individual fire or otherwise to discriminate against any individual with respect to his compensation, terms, conditions, or privileges of employment because of such individuals' race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. That is the full statute that is being interpreted here. And in particular, can you fire someone for being homosexual? Is that allowed or is it prohibited because that decision is based on someone's sex? And to look at what actually happened in this particular case, now this was actually a consolidated series of cases, but the main one, the Bostock one, goes as follows. Gerald Bostock worked for Clayton County, Georgia as a child welfare advocate. Under his leadership, the county won national awards for its work. After a decade with the county, Mr. Bostock began participating in a gay recreational softball league. Not long after that, influential members of the community allegedly made disparaging comments about Mr. Bostock's sexual orientation and participation in the league. Soon, he was fired for conduct unbecoming a county employee. Then the court goes on to summarize the other cases here. And really, the employers aren't arguing that that is why they fired these individuals, that it was because of homosexuality, it was because they were transgender. And so because that is assumed, we can go to the Supreme Court and not fight about these facts. We can actually say, is that illegal? Because the employers essentially grant that that is what happened. The status of the interpretation is based around what the statute meant in 1964. So this particular page I'm going to read, it's going to become controversial for some of my viewers because they don't see things the way the second paragraph is seen. But this is the way the court actually looks at statutes when they are deciding these questions. 
This court normally interprets a statute in accord with the ordinary public meaning of its terms at the time of its enactment. After all, only the words on the page constitute the law adopted by Congress and approved by the president. If judges could add to, remodel, update, or detract from old statutory terms inspired only by extra-textual sources and our own imaginations, we would risk amending statutes outside the legislative process reserved for the people's representatives, and we would deny the people the right to continue relying on the original meaning of the law they have counted on to settle their rights and obligations. Now, this is an important point to step back. Gorsuch is generally considered to be a conservative-leaning justice on the Supreme Court. And this first paragraph is him saying that this decision is a conservative one, is one based in the text. This is not a decision based on what you might consider the more left-leaning interpretation of the Constitution or statutory framework as a living document. He says... I am not looking at the Civil Rights Act of 1964 as a living document. I am reading the words on the page and I look at the actual text and I arrive at this decision and I don't need to do any of that living document analysis to get there. Now, the three dissenters disagree. They say this is entirely living document. This is ridiculous. This is legislation. But the court, through Gorsuch's opinion, is putting together an entire framework for why that isn't in fact the case. Now, when you see this black line here, that means this is not the paragraph that immediately follows the paragraph above. But in the interest of keeping this as short as humanly possible, and it won't be that short for an episode of virtual legality, I have elided certain paragraphs that only help to kind of establish the point stated above. The only statutorily protected characteristic at issue in today's cases is sex. And that is also the primary term in Title VII whose meaning the parties dispute. Appealing to roughly contemporaneous dictionaries, the employers say that as used here, the term sex in 1964 referred to status as either male or female as determined by reproductive biology. The employees counter by submitting that even in 1964, the term bore a broader scope, capturing more than anatomy and reaching at least some norms concerning gender identity and sexual orientation. But because nothing in our approach to these cases turns on the outcome of the party's debate, and because the employees concede the point for argument's sake, we proceed on the assumption that sex signified what the employers suggest, referring only to biological distinctions between male and female. So understand the Supreme Court has essentially accepted the employer's definition, say, hey, it only relates to reproductive biology. And as you know, since you're watching this video, the court nevertheless determines that the Civil Rights Act bars the discrimination that the employers would otherwise see themselves allowed to do. Now, how do they get there? Well, there's a couple of ways. The first is the language of because of. As the court says, the first part, the definition, that's just a starting point. The question isn't just what sex meant, but what Title VII says about it. Most notably, the statute prohibits employers from taking certain actions because of sex. And as this court has previously explained, the ordinary meaning of because of is by reason of or on account of. In the language of law, this means that Title VII's because of test incorporates the simple and traditional standard of but for causation. That form of causation is established whenever a particular outcome would not have happened but for the purported cause. In other words, a but-for test directs us to change one thing at a time and see if the outcome changes. If it does, we have found a but-for cause. And you can probably start to see where the court is getting at here. If we change that individual from a man to a woman, everything else stays the same. 
would you still fire that person? And if the answer is no, we might have a problem. The statute's message for our cases is equally simple and momentous. An individual's homosexuality or transgender status is not relevant to employment decisions. That's because it is impossible to discriminate against a person for being homosexual or transgender without discriminating against that individual based on sex. Now, I've highlighted this in yellow. I haven't used a lot of highlights in this video, but this is the crux of the court's decision. If you understand nothing else from this video, if you didn't read any other articles on this case, this is what this opinion is based on. Consider, for example, an employer with two employees, both of whom are attracted to men. The two individuals are, to the employer's mind, materially identical in all respects, except that one is a man and the other a woman. If the employer fires the male employee for no reason other than the fact that he is attracted to men, the employer discriminates against him for traits or actions it tolerates in his female colleague. Now, if you follow this kind of stuff closely, you probably recognize this argument. This is an argument that has been in law school since at least the time that I was there, and it is what same-sex marriage laws were based on that the state can't look at a man and say that man can marry a woman and then look at a woman and say that woman can't marry a woman. That equal protection under the law requires you to isolate that individual and say, are you treating that individually differently based on some factor that you aren't allowed to do that with? And here it's the exact same logic. Put differently, the employer intentionally singles out an employee to fire based in part on the employee's sex. And the affected employee's sex is a but-for cause of his discharge. Or take an employer who fires a transgender person who was identified as a male at birth, but who now identifies as a female. If the employer retains an otherwise identical employee who was identified as female at birth, the employer intentionally penalizes a person identified as male at birth for traits or actions that it tolerates in an employee identified as female at birth. Again, the individual employee's sex plays an unmistakable and impermissible role in the discharge decision. And I think that's right. If you look at this, that is exactly what it does. You've got two people of the same kind of qualities and you are discriminating on them based on whether or not they are a man or a woman or that they were identified as male or female at birth, as this particular opinion sets forth. But also understand the trickiness of that logic, of that conceit. No one in this opinion, and certainly not in the dissent, is actually arguing that because of sex was intended in 1964 to hit this particular bogey. No one is claiming that. What they are doing is saying, well, if you really think about it, all of these distinctions are based on sex. And I think that's right. But it is something that we need to be cautious of. We need to be cognizant of because this kind of literal textualist interpretation of what Congress puts forth can have negative ramifications. And if you've been in virtual legality before, you know that. And I say that not because of this particular issue. I say that because Congress is not so great at writing laws a lot of the time. We have gone through a lot of proposed statutes and current statutes and regulatory reforms and things of that nature. And we have seen the hundred different ways that sitting Congress people in the House, in the Senate, don't go through all of the logic necessary to even really isolate the obvious unintended consequences, not to mention the really inobvious ones. And I say this was inobvious because it took 40 some odd years plus to even start having this argument about what this law meant. So 
I believe that this is the appropriate interpretation of the Civil Rights Act. I have believed that for a long time. I do think it puts the onus on Congress to say, okay, if the court is going to read our words that closely, is going to interpret them in this fashion, we need to be more careful. Because if we don't intend for them to do something like this, we need to think through all of the ways that our statutes could be read. And frankly, they should be doing that anyway. That's what I do as a day job. I write contracts. I negotiate contracts. We think about how they could be interpreted by a judge down the line. If anything, that's what Congress should be doing. But the court says, hey, that's all we did here is we interpreted what you wrote. And how could we think of this differently? Now, in terms of the argument against them, Gorsuch says the following. This is the primary argument. Next, the employers turn to Title VII's list of protected characteristics, race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. Because homosexuality and transgender status can't be found on that list, and because they are conceptually distinct from sex, the employers reason they are implicitly excluded from Title VII's reach. Put another way, if Congress had wanted to address these matters in Title VII, it would have referenced them specifically. And that's another kind of framework that the court often uses. Hey, Congress knows how to write this. And then you put down the other statutes where they talked about all the things that Congress knows how to write. But the court here denies that argument. But that much does not follow. We agree that homosexuality and transgender status are distinct concepts from sex. But as we have seen, discrimination based on homosexuality or transgender status necessarily entails discrimination based on sex. The first cannot happen without the second. Again, the court is impressing upon the dissent and is making this decision based entirely on the nature of sex being implicitly understood as a subset of determining whether someone is homosexual or determining whether they are transgender. Because sex is part of that definition. It can't not be. And once it is part of that definition, the court says, hey, if it's part of the definition, you can't do anything based around it. And you can understand if you are on the dissent side or if you're on the anti-policy side of this argument, you say, hey, that seems to be broadening out the actual language in the text. And it surely does. But the court says that is the literal and textual interpretation of the statute. And I don't necessarily disagree. Next, we get into the dissents. That's the opinion. That's what this is all based on. You can't treat a man that likes men differently from a woman that likes men. You can't treat them differently. And the same goes for transgender status. And because of that, the Civil Rights Act steps in and says no. Justice Alito and Justice Thomas have the first dissent. And what they've accused the court of doing with this is legislating. There is only one word for what the court has done today. Legislation. The document that the court releases is in the form of a judicial opinion interpreting a statute, but that is deceptive. The court tries to convince readers that it is merely enforcing the terms of the statute, but that is preposterous. Even as understood today, the concept of discrimination because of sex is different from discrimination because of sexual orientation or gender identity. The court attempts to pass off its decision as the inevitable product of the textualist school of statutory interpretation championed by our late colleague Justice Scalia. But no one should be fooled. The court's opinion is like a pirate ship. It sails under a textualist flag, but what it actually represents is a theory of statutory interpretation that Justice Scalia excoriated. The theory that courts should update old statutes so that they better reflect the current values of society. So that paragraph is what we talked about earlier. The dissent looks at this and says, you can call it textualist all you want, but it 
is not reflective of what Congress thought they were passing. And so in a very real way, this is legislating from the bench. And you, Justice Gorsuch, if you are right-leaning, conservative, whatever you want to frame yourself as, you should be evincing a judicial restraint that is not shown here. Now, no, Gorsuch and Roberts are both on that side of the decision, so this could be leveled at Roberts as well from the dissent's side. But they sit here and say, that's all well and good. You looked at this programmatically, but that has the effect of making this a living statute that no one could have known in 1970-whatever that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 barred this particular behavior. And if no one could have known, the court can't come up with some kind of new novel idea, new novel approach, new novel reading, and say, yep, that's the way the Civil Rights Act always read. We just got it wrong for decades. Now, many will applaud today's decision because they agree on policy grounds with the court's updating of Title VII. But the question in these cases is not whether discrimination because of sexual orientation or gendered identity should be outlawed. The question is whether Congress did that in 1964. Now, this is where I agree with the dissent. Now, you already heard me say I, I agree with the opinion language. I agree that the Civil Rights Act actually does this. But what's important from a legal perspective when you're reading these court cases is to understand what justices are intended to do. They don't always do a great job of this. You've heard me probably talk about certain decisions that I disagree with, certain justices that I don't think write logically all the time. And certainly this dissent in general, I think, has a lot of circular reasoning with respect to individuals and groups that I am skipping here. You can check it out yourself, but I didn't find that it added a lot of value to the discussion. What did add value is this last paragraph. Justices are interpreting laws as Congress set them out. And justices should not be in the business of simply looking at the law and figuring out any kind of square peg that they can fit into that round hole that represents what they want the law to have said. And if I disagreed with the reasoning in the main opinion of this court case, I would very much be holding fast to this last paragraph. That is exactly the kind of critique that I think is warranted. And certainly these justices, these two especially, Alito and Thomas, think that that is what the court is doing, and they're more than welcome to their opinion on that score. Now, I find the actual argumentation in this particular dissent to be unconvincing, but they are welcome to it. The problem is not that these justices disagree. The problem is that modern society, Twitter, social media, or what have you, always and everywhere respond to every one of these issues from a political standpoint. The best justices, the best decisions, the best dissents say exactly what this last paragraph says. Hey, look, we disagree on what the law says. And this is an accusation in part to the opinion makers on the court that says, hey, your policy preferences might be getting in the way a little bit here. But that is entirely within their ambit to argue you shouldn't be allowing that to happen. And I think every justice in the court would say that isn't what is happening, but it is what we should think about as kind of outside parties. When we look at this, we should read the dissents, we should read the opinions and not assume that policy preferences are taking over, but try to understand the logic of the legalities behind their decision making. Now, Justice Kavanaugh also dissented. I believe this is the first time Kavanaugh has issued a dissent, certainly of this magnitude. And he frames it almost exactly as that last paragraph does and as that response in the main opinion does. Like many cases in this court, this case boils down to one fundamental question. Who decides? And all of these dissent opinions basically frame this as follows. 
This is legislation. In fact, we know it's legislation because Congress has tried to pass a law covering these things for a long, long time. You have seen bills put up in the House, put up in the Senate, discussed among Congress that have not been passed that would amend the Civil Rights Act and Title VII of that act to cover sexual orientation, to cover transgender status, and that those statutes have failed to be passed should be considered representative of the democracy of the United States, and the court shouldn't just step in. Now, I will tell you, I think that is a good logical argument. I think that is a good argument to suggest, hey, if Congress can't pass this, it means there isn't a broad acceptance of changing the Civil Rights Act in this fashion. However, I don't think that step should be necessary if you can read the statute as it is on the books, as the court has done, to do what Congress has already apparently tried to do more expressly. The fact that Congress was trying to clear it up to make it more obvious doesn't completely kill the fact that the statute might already do this thing. You do see this in contract law and other places in the law where you put what we would call belt and suspenders in place in a contract that says, hey, we're going to cover this same topic again just to make very clear what we meant. But it doesn't mean that if for some reason this second provision, this belt and suspenders provision gets kicked out by a court, that the first provision doesn't have any power. We think the first provision does what it needs to do, but we want to be very, very clear. So I don't think that Congress looking to add these terms to the Civil Rights Act completely kills the argument of the opinion of the court. But certainly these dissenters do, and they argue that this legislation is wrongful. Kavanaugh's main argument, instead of a hard-earned victory won through the democratic process, today's victory is brought about by judicial dictate, judges latching on to a novel form of living literalism to rewrite ordinary meaning and remake American law. Under the Constitution and laws of the United States, this court is the wrong body to change American law in that way. The court's ruling comes at a great cost to representative self-government, and the implications of this court's usurpation of the legislative process will likely reverberate in unpredictable ways for years to come. That's Kavanaugh's primary point. That is Alito and Thomas's point as well. Now, it's worth noting Kavanaugh didn't sign on to their dissent, instead electing to write his own That might be indicative of some sort of disagreement. Alito's is far longer than Kavanaugh's. Alito actually adds whole series of exhibits about all the federal laws that might need to be reinterpreted, all the problems that could stem from this kind of reading of a text put forth by Congress. There's a lot of pages there. You can, again, check those out if you are interested. I didn't find the reasoning that compelling. Uh, But this is Kavanaugh. This is Thomas. This is Alito. And it's worth noting that both sides of the dissent Don't take away from the victory that was sought by LGBTQ advocates during this decision. Kavanaugh actually finishes his opinion with the following. Notwithstanding my concern about the court's transgression of the Constitution's separation of powers, it is appropriate to acknowledge the important victory achieved today by gay and lesbian Americans. Millions of gay and lesbian Americans have worked hard for many decades to achieve equal treatment in fact and in law. They've exhibited extraordinary vision, tenacity, and grit, battling often steep odds in the legislative and judicial arenas, not to mention in their daily lives. They have advanced powerful policy arguments and take pride in today's result. His disagreement, regardless of how you feel about Justice Kavanaugh as a person, is premised and foundationed upon a disagreement with the separation of powers. He feels that the court has started to legislate 
has interpreted a statute in a way that for this particular victory should have been in the hands of Congress. But both of these dissents don't evince the kind of blatant discriminatory animus that you might otherwise see them described as in various news reports that you find yourself reading on Twitter or Facebook or elsewhere. The justices, even those that I disagree with, comported themselves well, explained their arguments well, and in the best kind of dissent and opinion making, if you're sitting in a law school class, one of the things the professor might say to you is that when you're reading a case, the best kind of writing gets you to a place where you get done with the opinion and say, how could it be any way else? And you get done with the dissent and you say, actually, how could it be any way else that the dissent said? And I don't think this case gets there. I don't think the dissent has a powerful enough argument to quite arrive at a place where you say, oh, they both have excellent points. But the dissent did fine in comporting itself. It didn't write with political or other forms of animus. And I think it's important to remember that when we reflect on these cases, that these justices are first and foremost charged with interpreting the law. So at the end of the day, that is a very important case. You will hear its name, Bostock, a lot in the future. This is one of those that will be reflected upon probably in our presidential campaign going forward in 2020 and for the years beyond. And at the end of the day, it mostly relates to you can't fire a man that likes men if you wouldn't fire a woman that likes men. And that's what the Supreme Court made its decision on. I hope you found this illuminating. I tried to cover this in a half hour. We're going to squeak just over that number. But for 172 pages, I think I did all right. We are covering a lot of these types of topics in virtual legality, usually with a little bit more of a premise based around the media, pop culture, video games, movies, law and business related thereto. If you like this, please like, subscribe, tell your friends we're here, put it on forums, put it on Reddit threads, anywhere you can find that there might be somebody interested in this kind of topic presentation. Otherwise, if you saw this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of virtual legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.